You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just delight in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight won't steer you wrong. Johnny Appleseed himself. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Thanks for tuning in to another episode, guys. I am coming off of my high here. I have, uh, so if you listened to last week's episode, you know that I was headed down to do a hunt in New Jersey. And wrapping that hunt up, we had a successful hunt. I ended up killing my first bear with the bow and I also killed uh, killed a small buck with my bow and I did it all on day three I did it with uh, I did it out of the same tree in the same day it was a crazy hunt a lot of crazy stories happening but we saw a ton of bears there was uh, four of us that went in total the the second go around the, fir- the first two days it was just myself and and uh, and my uh, my family Mark Lesher and uh, I'm not going to spoil it too much for you because I think I'm going to round the boys up and we're going to do a hunt recap and, and tell the whole story from the beginning to the end, how we came across the, the place that we hunted to harvesting two bear and a buck. Uh, our buddy buddy Jason Miller was able to connect on a bear with the muzzleloader and pretty much everybody saw bear except uh, except one guy. And... Uh, it was a dream come true. It was, it was uh, definitely the highlight of my hunting season for sure, and it just began. So I'm hoping to do some more hunting and get out here soon. But, yeah, it's uh, it's still a pinch-me feeling. I'm looking forward to having some bear meat in the house. It's been quite a number of years since I did that. Plan to – I've taken one of the hinds, and I'm going to cure it like a ham and smoke it. Then going to get some roasts and any of the trim meat, going to get some sausage. And I am looking forward to it because I personally think bear meat is delicious. And uh, I'm, I'm anxious to see my wife's reaction because I don't know the last bear that I killed. I don't know if she tried any of it. In fact, I'm trying to think of how long ago it was since I killed the bear. And I was, if I was even with my wife at the time, I'm sure I was, but time just jumbles together. But yeah, it was a great experience, and I tell you what, I'm still on a bear kick. I think I might take the muzzleloader out um, with uh, the muzzleloader season in this week, and I'll definitely have bear on my mind when I'm going to be bow hunting as it's open until, I believe, November 4th. So good luck to everybody out there chasing bear, chasing deer. Uh, still don't have anything real exciting on the deer end of things i did see i did get pictures of a buck from last year i believe he's a three-year-old he's a nine pointer this year i had pictures of him last year and i found a shed this summer when i was scouting uh really nice buck not sure if it's a buck that i would want to shoot or not but it was probably one of the nicer ones i've seen for a while and that was kind of exciting so again i'm going off of some windows of when i think it's going to get good and we're getting close to that i think the last about the last uh week in October I think I have a window of when one deer that I would possibly shoot will show up and then another deer is probably going to be in that second week in November time frame so that's what I'm rolling with and other than that it's going to be flying by the seat of my pants so shifting gears here and uh, getting to this week's episode this week I had a conversation with a couple fellows from the Rough Grouse Society, I was able to attend a, a regional meeting in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, and had Ben Larson on the podcast, and we were also joined by Jan Kristen and Dave Henry. These guys are diehards. We've got biologists. We've got foresters. Uh, we've got hardworking guys that just love grouse and love woodcock and love seeing habitat restoration done to its fullest and thus seeing the rewards of that seeing improved populations improved hunting improved wildlife in general because as these guys talk you realize that while they are definitely minded towards grouse woodcock 
and uh, th- those birds of the forest, everything benefits from the habitat projects. We're going to talk specifically about forest stands, forest management, the whys behind things, the how from a funding standpoint, what the Rough Grass Society does from the how end of things, and much, much more. This is a great episode with some extremely knowledgeable individuals. So before we get to this episode, real quick shout out to our partners. That's going to be Radix Hunting. The uh, M-Core cell cameras, guys, they were a huge part for my success in my New Jersey hunt. Uh, had great service. I had excellent picture quality. I think I might have even swayed my hunting buddies to, to tinker and, and use some Radix cameras this year, but they really did work great. I've just been thrilled about how easy they are to set up and manipulate. In addition to Radix, we've also got the stick and pick accessories for trail cameras, hunting blinds, tree stands, and running their hang-on stands. Check out Radix Hunting and Huntworth Gear. The uh, that disruption pattern, I really, really like it. When I was when I was hunting this this week in Jersey, I was wearing their lightweight hoodie, the Durham pants, and then I put the Elkins vest over the top, and that was perfect because it it took the uh, the edge off the chill in the morning. Once the sun came up, I was able to to just take the the uh, the vest off, and I was comfortable. The other thing I liked about the hoodie is it has a built-in face mask. So it was able to cover my face and keep me warm. If you're, you know, really interested in breaking up your outline and your face from the wood standpoint, of course it's going to do that. But I liked that that was built in. Really comfortable setup. I was really happy how durable the pants were. They they did a great job. I went through some nasty stickers and briars, and they didn't get torn up and ripped up to a million pieces like I've had in the past. So I'm anxious to keep putting them to the test in that that type of environment. I always am, I'm pretty hard on stuff. And so far, first impressions are pretty good. So check out Huntworth Gear. And with that, let's get to this episode. So uh, this is an awesome opportunity. So I connected uh, through social media, of all things. I, I curse social media all the time. But uh, it was one opportunity here where we, we connected. Uh, I was put in contact with Ben. And it just so happened that you know within an hour driving distance from home, you guys are having a banquet, so thanks for sitting down. Uh, I'm sitting with guys from uh, Rough Grouse Society, so this is uh, this is pretty exciting. So thanks for for hopping sure. on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. us. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's rare that I get to do a, a group podcast in person, so this is always fun. Uh, and I know we got an event tonight, so I, I don't want to cut anybody short on dinner or any, no, anything going on. We should be fine. <laughs> so if you fine. if you have to to cut out for sure, we can uh, we can uh, adjust from that. But I really wanted to uh, just get an idea of. What's happening in the Rough Grouse Society? What's happening from the habitat standpoint? What's happening? You know, I have a, a background in biology. I'm very interested in habitat management restoration. And uh, I just want to go around real quick and everybody introduce themselves and, and you know, tell them what, what hand you have in this. Uh, ben, you want to want to start us? Sure. Thanks very much. Yeah, Ben Larson uh, was hired two and a half years ago to work with the Rough Grouse Society in the Mid-Atlantic region. Background is a forester worked for a forest product company before working for the RGS. And uh, essentially what I'm doing is working with our members like uh, Jan and Dave and many other chapters across the Mid-Atlantic and agencies, state and federal agencies, private landowners, uh, industry. Industry is a key piece of this because they buy the wood that makes the forest management happen at scale. And we're trying to do strategic forest management that has habitat benefits on public and private land. We can get more into that, but that's the essential kind of mission of RGS at this point is using working forests to have maximum habitat benefits. Absolutely, and habitat goes a long way. We were just talking about that earlier, how how important habitat is, and I I can't wait to dive into that. Jan, uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, Jan Kristen from Lidditz, Pennsylvania. I'm a committee member on a local chapter here in southeast Pennsylvania and I've been involved with RGS for probably 20 years and basically the whole purpose is to you know support forest diversity and uh, you know develop uh, more diverse habitat for grouse woodcock and every other species that you know we all cherish 
Absolutely. And, and yeah. I'm, D- I'm Dave Henry. I, I worked for the Game Commission for 35 years, retired in 2015. I was a regional forester, and our, our charge was to manage the forest for wildlife. That was the Game Commission's mission, and still is today, and that was what we worked hard at. I began a relationship with the Grouse Society because, A, they were willing to help with projects, and B, they were willing to fund some projects. So it was, so it was a two-pronged effort to help the Game Commission from a habitat standpoint particularly in sites where the timber was of low value or poor value and the industry, the value of the the, the material would not support the industry coming in and doing that work and or creating the habitat. So it was a win-win for RGS and wildlife and for the Game Commission at the same time. And that's what spearheaded this back in the mid-80s. Right. Now, I have to ask you, you're retired so you can have no filter on this question, which is perfect, but what's What's easier to manage, forest and wildlife or the people that have their hands in it? That's a very challenging (laughs) question. Having grown up and worked through an environment where we had many people challenge us and cutting trees on public land is not a popular tool for wildlife management. People object to that because they object to cutting trees, okay, Mm -hmm. particularly on public land. We had many uh, interactions with the public dealing with trying to make them understand or better understand what our goals were, how we were doing it, and how it was scientifically sound. And that, that led to many, some sleepless nights and many challenges for me. Uh, I'll give you one real simple, very short example. We spent one whole year battling with some conservation groups locally here in Berks County on the school up near Hamburg mm-hmm. over a timber sale that we were going to destroy the, the water supply for the city of Reading. We were going to destroy the Appalachian Trail. We were going to degrade all the, all the songbird habitat on the Blue Mountain on this game land. And it went from there, and it took a whole year. I got almost 1,000 letters opposing this from all over the country. Mm. So the public does get involved, okay? And it's, it's something as massive as that or something as small as just you're cutting trees next to a neighbor's house and they're concerned about their safety. Mm-hmm. It, it, it runs the whole gamut. But the public definitely has a role in the management program. The, the question becomes, in my mind, what, to what degree does that role determine what happens or doesn't happen? Fortunately, in my career, we were never stopped from do, moving forward with the project. We had to make some deviations. We had to make some small changes. But at the end of the day, we were able to move the project forward, create the habitat work done, and go from there. Gotcha. That makes sense. And I'm I'm sure you guys can echo that, too. I mean, at the end of the day, um, whenever it comes to making advances anywhere in life, I mean, you could probably go down any rabbit hole with this. But education is the biggest thing because there's a lot of people that have their hands in there in this with interest in in the wildlife interest in grouse interest in this but not understanding the the biome itself the ecology behind it and and that's where where you guys come into a a big aspect for that many years ago a college pref i went to penn statement a long long time ago forestry is the most misunderstood science out there that was the statement he made and that's something that stuck with me because uh-huh. the, the public has one perception, just like fire is a management tool. They perceive the, the big fires in the west and northwest, okay? Using fire in Pennsylvania is a totally different option in a totally different environment with a totally different outcome. But the public, some of the public doesn't understand that either. Right. Jan, you were telling me earlier that the you know, Rough Grouse Society has come a long way in a, in a long time. And, and you feel like really now you're starting to, to gain traction. And I want to dive into that a little bit more because I don't quite understand everything behind that so i mean if you guys all will i mean tell me a little bit about um the grassroots of this this organization and where we're going now in 2023 and goals yeah well it, well it all stop starts from the top down and everyone has a piece of the puzzle but the direction that rgs is headed now from the top is to increase the scope and the scale and it all starts um you know, Ben Jones, the president of RGS, has a saying that I just love. You know, you stop at any beautiful scenic overlook in Pennsylvania and look out across the mountains, and it's gorgeous. Unless you're a forester and a wildlife enthusiast. Exactly. Yep. And you look at it, and it's a sea of sameness. Mm-hmm. It's a biological desert in places. So, RGS's main objective is to create forest diversity 
that not only benefits grouse and woodcock, it benefits human beings. It benefits deer and bear and turkeys and songbirds and small game. So that's where the vision starts, and then the pieces have to be put into the into the puzzle. Ben Larson has a very big hand in the big picture. Mm-hmm. Locally, we have a big hand in the small picture. You know, our mission is to raise funds so that we can leverage those funds to add a piece of the puzzle to Ben's overall plan for Pennsylvania and dynamic forest blocks. And, you know, everything's working the way it's supposed to. The scale has ramped up immensely. The funding has ramped up immensely. So that's the part that I'm really, really enthused about. Um, It's happening at the scale it needs to happen to affect huge amounts of of, uh, habitat. Sure. and, And that's really where we're at right now. So... It's clicking on all cylinders, and the partners Ben's talking about, you know, commercial markets. If there's money involved, Habitat's going to get Things are going to happen. If there's money involved, things are going to happen. Things are going to happen. And now there's, you know, groups that, you know, we've been on the opposite side of the fences, Bird Conservancy and... um, Even Hawk Mountain has come around. National Wild Turkey Association. We're partnering with everyone because... A great grouse management plan is a great management plan for, like I said, white-tailed deer, bear, turkey, mm-hmm. songbirds. It benefits us all. So it's easy to be enthused about our mission. We don't need to build pens and grow birds. We need to create habitat, mm-hmm. and nature takes over from there. And Absolutely. one of those projects is the, called the Kittitini Ridge, which runs from the Lehigh Valley all the way to the, to the Susquehanna River along the Blue Mountain. If you traveled 78 or 81, mm-hmm. you would see those things. And that most of that land, not all of it, but most of that is game lands from the, the Susquehanna all the way over to Route 33 going north up from Allentown. Mm-hmm. And the game lands, that project is designed to get habitat along the whole ridge, not just a little spot here and a little spot there, but have habitat that's connected so wildlife can be connected and make use of those, those various activities that are happening there for wildlife. All right. Ben, I'm, I'm anxious to talk about the big scope because we've been flirting around that a little bit, and you've got a big role in this, and I want to dive into that a little bit. So, I mean, uh, take it off from, from the beginning because I'm not sure how to start it other than that. <laughs> well, I'm very lucky because I joined RGS when RGS had already been part of uh, an informal but very effective partnership called the Dynamic Forest Partnership. Okay. Um, formed primarily with the Game Commission, as Dave was talking about, uh, American Bird Conservancy, as, as Jan uh, mentioned, uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Jeff Larkin at uh, both ABC and IUP, um, as well as now the National Wild Turkey Federation, Audubon Mid-Atlantic, and many other partners. Um, the neat thing about this collaboration is that we don't have a lot of meetings, we don't have a lot of, you know, don't even have a website, mm-hmm. but for about the last seven years, these partners, uh, nonprofit organizations, the Game Commission, some state forests, uh, even some state parks here in Pennsylvania, have restored over 300,000 acres of habitat mm-hmm. for golden wing warblers, rough grouse, woodcock, cerulean warblers. As Jan was mentioning, it goes far beyond uh, woodcock and grouse, which are our namesake um, right. wildlife. But this is really about forest diversity and the Dynamic Forest Partnership here in Pennsylvania is making it happen through these very effective um, uh, partnerships between nonprofit organizations. Even some private landowners are now okay. getting some funding to do some good forest management. Um, so that's the part that's really exciting to me is because mm-hmm. we're working on a, on a recent proposal, recent grant. Uh, includes a couple of um, water uh agencies uh, outside of Harrisburg and Duncannon Borough. They have forests around their reservoirs and they're managing the forest primarily for water quality, water you know, security, but also for habitat. Sure. 
And so we're working with lots of interesting partners, the, the Bureau of Forestry, DCNR, Tuscarora State Forest is going to be part of that. So we're really working across the landscape, in this case, Kittatinny Ridge, as, as, as um, Dave was mentioning. And we're doing that in all parts of Pennsylvania and, and many other regions as well. So that's, that's the kind of secret sauce that RGS is cooking up at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fun and it's effective and it's, it's super interesting and innovative because we are working with industry. You know, it's the, primarily the markets for pulpwood that help remove the low-quality material that's the hardest to get out of the woods. Sometimes we need some extra financing, as Dave was saying. Sometimes there isn't enough volume or value. So we can raise some funds, do some fundraising from nonprofit and uh, grant-making organizations. Sometimes the federal government has some money. Um, bringing together what's needed in particular places to do the work at scale. That's the really cool thing. Well, and I want to bring that whole part of the conversation into full circuit and kind of understand the beginning to end how we make that work. But let's just start off with the habitat, first of all, because um, as Jan had made mention, we've been flirting around this all day. Like, we have a lot of closed canopy forests. We have a lot of the same age forests across the across the state. I mean, we got two different forest types and a lot of we got, you know, you know your, your oak hickories, beech birch maples and stuff like that. But even so, a lot of it is cut at the same age and you talked about early succession but i mean let's dive into that like uh what is what's the goal when you talk about early succession i mean we talking about a certain um age of cut and how we're rotating that like what what does that look like from just the ultimate end goal for woodcock and and rough grouse to put a, a great definition on early successional habitat and dave has a lot more knowledge on the tools and stuff like that but let's wrap this up with right now with closed canopy forest and don't get us wrong we need closed canopy forest there needs to be diversity of forest but all that energy is 50 feet in the air Mm -hmm. early successional habitat is energy on the ground sun's the only source of energy that we have if it's not hitting the ground and we don't have uh, energy biomass at the level that the animals live it's it's inaccessible to them right so the that early successional phrase is really rebirth mm-hmm. and putting that where animals can make use of it human beings can make use of it uh, carbon sequestration and all those things that we can get into so that's the first step is bringing that biomass that energy back to a level in the forest that the the birds the deer and everything else can make use of right taking that one step further if you think back about the history of pennsylvania between about 1880 and about the start of the first world war which was 1915 Mm -hmm. pennsylvania was clear-cut completely right there was very little that was not harvested so the forests that you're seeing today are a product of that activity right 100 to 120 years ago. So the ages of forest in Pennsylvania continues to increase and the rate of harvest has continued to decrease when you look across the whole spectrum of available forest land. Pennsylvania has about uh, 19 million acres of which about 12 million is forested. The Game Commission has 1.5 million. So the impact across on a landscape scale is pretty limited in areas and the challenge with that is is coordinating through people like rough grouse society to get that early successional habitat which is basically as jan alluded to getting those trees that are from about this big to about 20 feet tall that's going to be about a tree 15 years of age somewhere in that range okay depending on species and the re- result of that is all the wildlife that utilizes that for ground nesting, songbirds, etc., browse for deer, mm-hmm. anything you can imagine that wildlife will utilize, that needs to be maintained across the landscape in order for that wildlife to be maintained. Right. If you cut one time and you don't continue that habitat program, you're going to reach a point where that wildlife isn't going to have what it needs. It's either going to have to move or it's not going to survive. Right. So there's where the Kinnatitty Ridge project locally here is paramount for habitat for wildlife. We need that across the landscape, mm-hmm. not just one time. And, and I understand landowners feel like, a private landowner in particular will say, I've done my part, okay? I have 20 acres and I've done my part, okay? And that's great. But if there's nothing around that 20 acres, 
over time, that part isn't going to be anything. And that's the challenge where RGS has stepped up to the table many times when I was working to help us get some of those things happening in areas where we couldn't pull that trigger and make it happen. All right, you're talking about making sure that we've got uni more uniform dispersion of populations. Absolutely. Because when you've got an island of an oasis of that's, habitat, that's right. it's going to re deplete resources in a very quick speed, especially with the four-legged deer that we've got Absolutely. around. I mean, they, they quickly They're decimate that, and that's why we've got so many places in our forest where, yeah, we have early succession, but uh, it's the browse line's so bad, and then what fills in? Invasive species. And I, I want invasive. you guys to, to, yes. to elaborate on that. But you, you keep bringing up this this uh, one specific project, Kittatinny Ridge. Ridge, yeah. Um, I don't know, Ben, if you want to expound a little bit sure, on Sure, sure. So this is a really cool um, for me because it shows how the different kinds of partners can really be part of a larger landscape scale impact. Um, we're here tonight at the banquet for the South Mountain and the Charles Bechtel chapters, uh, Rough Grouse Society, um, raising money through raffles, donations, um, and that money is going to be used for habitat here locally, but also it's going to be used strategically. And so with the Game Commission, the chapters are going to figure out where does it actually make sense for volunteers to do some work? Where does it make sense for the chapters to put some money into, you know, rebuild a road, extend a road so there can be some forest management happen that wouldn't otherwise happen? And then what I do for my part is work with external funders, other partners, and augment that local kind of strategic volunteer, you know, chapter scale with some larger sources of funding, some external partners. And so the way I think about it is extending the mosaic. So if you've got a, a young stand that's in good condition, we need to manage around that. So there's a, what we call a shifting mosaic. So you have a, a good stand coming into in a good conditions, 10, 20 years old. But then that's going to grow older and grow out of that prime habitat condition. So you need management lined up to happen around it, you know, really over the decades. Because we, right. need, we need to move from this closed canopy, single age, sort of monolithic habitat condition that Jan and, and Dave were talking about to a condition where we have much more diversity. We need open canopy forests. We need oak in particular needs to get some light on the ground to get those seedlings going. We need more young forests. We need more, actually we need more old forests that have better habitat quality. You know, old forests actually do have a lot of habitat value. It's just that we don't actually have many old forests that are in good condition. Right. <laughs> so it's really the full spectrum of forest types and ages. And, you know, the cool thing about what RGS is doing is putting together the pieces for the forestry to happen, uh, to get the ecological restoration going at scale, benefit lots of different kind of species and do it in strategic places and with lots of different partners. So, and the Kittatinny Ridge is a great example of that. There's mm -hmm. a lot of external funding. National Fish and Wildlife Foundation in particular is, is uh, helping to fund some work we're doing on the Kittatinny Ridge now uh, and in many other places in Pennsylvania. So, okay. so they're funding the Mellon. Mellon Foundation has been really integral, helping with a lot of this as well. Um, and U.S. Fish, U.S. Forest Service is, I think, going to be helping us with some work with the the Bureau of Forestry and the DCNR here in Pennsylvania. So it's really a great time to be doing this kind of work and to be doing it smartly, doing it strategically, because um, it's a big apple, you know, yeah, that we're trying to bite out of. I don't know how many acres. I, I, yeah. I can't tell you off the yeah. top of my head. Yeah, it's too much. We can't do it everywhere. So we've right. got to pick our battles, be, be smart, be strategic. Um, and that's what we're really trying to do And here. one example of a project that was just completed last month um, RGS funded the construction of an access trail. We, it was a part of a large game lands and we couldn't get in because of the water source and spring seeps mm. and all that kind of thing. You couldn't build a road to go in and harvest the material, but we could build a trail, we, the, the game, working with the game commission on game lands to construct a trail for 2.2 miles, which RGS funded to do this so they can we can they rg uh the game commission can harvest about 200 acres not to remove the trees they're just going to fell the trees and let they're going to hire a contractor to go in and fell the material and there's a total of about f almost 500 acres here that can be managed like that so there'll be sustainability of that project not just a one-time 
felling of the trees. Mm -hmm. It's planned over about a 15-year cycle because when you get about a half a mile north of there, then we can do commercial, they're doing commercial management. Mm -hmm. So, but this was a large acre, 500 acres, it was untouchable prior to this trail. If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their one-two planting system. The system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizeseed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Now explain to me and the listeners for that matter, how do you approach um, or, or target um, the, the type of cutting that's needed in a forest? So, I mean, there's there's different types of cuts, and I, and I don't know the ins and outs of what they are and what they mean. But, I mean, in my mind, when I think of closed canopy forest, I think make 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 sunlight i mean that's all i think is cut a lot but i mean there's other ways how are you attacking that and i'm kind of curious then um what what's some of the species that you're really trying to promote in that case is? okay uh you want to you want to answer better? yeah i'll, I'll take ahead. a cab and then you, go, then go you ahead, answer then. sure sure well take oaks for example um you know oaks are a little tricky from a silvicultural mm-hmm. from a forestry point of view um because you need to get some sunlight on the ground so when the acorn germinates and grows a seedling, that seedling can get established. If you cut an oak forest without having that so-called advanced regeneration, those young seedlings, you may wind up with something else. Right. So often with an oak forest, and there are a lot of different kinds of oak forests, but in general terms, you often need to open up the forest, the canopy a little bit, uh, hopefully you got some acorns, you got some young seedlings already established. You give them some time, they get established better, and then you can go back with subsequent management. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you have some invasives you got to take care of. Maybe there's some ferns. You know, it's often a multi-year, multi-step process. It's sort of like, it's a lot more sort of like gardening than just sort of logging. You know? Right. It's a, yeah. it's a long-term relationship with particular stands and you know, that's why foresters and biologists are so critical in these projects. But so you got to open up the stand, open up the canopy, get some light on the ground, as Jan was talking about, get those seedlings going. And then you can open up the canopy more or even take off the canopy and so-called regeneration harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the sort of general process with oak silviculture. Uh, there's a lot of nuances and complications and um many many complications many complications yes (laughs) and and unfortunately it all starts with an acorn we need an acorn crop okay if we don't get an acorn a good acorn crop for a number of years and wildlife as you know consumes many acorns sure there used to be a statistic i don't know if it's still valid out of every 100 acorns it was produced five to ten actually get a chance to germinate and Mm. start to grow so when you start to think if that's still true, and I, that was a, a statistic from years ago from Ohio. I don't know. But anyway, my point of it is you need a good acorn crop for to get an oak tree. Right. You don't have an acorn crop for five years. You don't have chances of establishing and managing that site are virtually zero. Mm-hmm. You're not going to harvest something that's not silviculturally sound. Silviculture is the art and science of growing trees, okay, whatever the species be and whatever it be. When I worked, we used what was called oak silva, which is from up on the Allegheny. Um, and it was a guiding tool. It wasn't the be-all to end-all, but it was a tool to make, help you make decisions based on that plus your experience over the last 20 years on adjacent sites or what worked or what didn't work or approaches you tried with fire or with invasive species and all those. And then the unknown was always the white-tailed deer. You do everything and it seems like it's all dovetailing together and you're thinking, man, and this is about a 20-year process. So that's how we viewed it. It's about a 20-year process to start with an overstory that's closed to a, a young forest that's been regenerated with a fair portion of oak. Mm-hmm. And then you interject higher deer numbers at year three, four, five, six as the seedlings are this tall and trying to grow. Then we're back almost to square one. Mm-hmm. So part of the overall management has been alluded to. You have good plans, but the plans 
for us tend to go awry. We were on game lands. We did not have deer management assistance program. That's since come into as a tool this year for the first time. Prior to that, we just tried to direct hunters to locations to harvest additional deer. And we wanted, we didn't want the forest barren of deer. We just didn't want a deer behind every other tree. And right. some game lands over the years had those kind of conditions. And some do to this very day. Yes. And some people are unwilling to harvest antlerless animals. Some people are willing to walk more than a half a mile. Some people want every road open so they can drive to wherever. All that was part of those nuances of trying to manage a stand or stands or a site that complicated our ability to put a young forest on the ground. And it goes back to people management, which is why I yeah, asked you that yeah, question in the first yeah, place. Yeah. And, and to back up to your original question, yeah, how do we make those decisions? These guys, professionals, foresters, biologists, we don't make the decisions. Right. We go to the professionals and take their advice and let foresters manage the forest and biologists talk with the foresters mm-hmm. on how to create the habitat we're looking for. So it's all driven by professionals we don't go out there and say oh we're going to create grouse habitat it's you know the forest bureau the game commission uh, you know biologists uh, so it it always falls back on professionals this is all scientific professionally driven sure so from like a from a cutting standpoint we talked about oak regeneration but there's so much more to the whole uh to the old whole picture exactly and you know that there's there's a grassland component there's a shrub component there's a um a deciduous forest component there's so many different components to that and i'll be frank i really don't know the uh the, the the daily scope of grouse and woodcock and, and the, the the species specific that they need in order to thrive from a food i mean i understand that cover and, and, and thick i mean i used to think when i was bear hunting everything that i went through from a bear hunting standpoint was fantastic grouse cover because i used to flush grass in sure. it it was thick laurel and rhododendron but there's so much more to that so just walk us through some of that other that other species regeneration that we're really trying to accomplish with some of these cuts and anything else? Outside of the oak, I mean, in, in southeastern Pennsylvania, we have a, a lot of tulip poplar, mm. okay? That was the next most dominant species. And we'd, we'd gotten to the point, and it was a long learning curve, don't get me wrong. This wasn't something we learned overnight, but we had gotten it down to the point that in most tulip stands, we were able to successfully regenerate them in five to seven years when we were ready mm. through a simple process of what's called a, sh- a two-stage shelterwood. You interject some sunlight, control the vegetation on the ground. Tulip seedlings, tulip produces tremendous amounts of seed every year. Now, not all of it's viable, but it produces a lot of seed. And as that gets established and grows, it grows at two times, three times the size, the rate of an oak seedling. I don't, I don't, at least, okay. A a two-year-old tulip seedling will be two to three feet tall. A two-year-old oak seedling is going to be about six inches. I just know I have to loosen the uh, straps on my tree stands a lot quicker if it's on a poplar. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. And, and, and my point is, in those sites where we had tulip, we were able to manage that and produce habitat in a relatively short and very successful time period. Okay. To the point that it almost became... I hate to use the word easy, but it became pretty dependable. Right. Maybe that's a better word, dependable, that we could do that. When we got outside of those those tulip stands, which are primarily south sloping, moisture, yep. uh, some moisture, a lo- little bit of moisture in the ground, or on the north side, a little bit of tulip where there was a little moisture in the north side, down low on the toe slope, things like that. We could manage those pretty successfully. When you got into that in-between site, between the good growing site and the, and the top of the mountain, that, those were more of a challenge because there's where you had laurel and you had other things, and there's where the deer were the biggest factor. Mm. And everything else wants to grow on the real good sites, but not on the poor sites. So there's where the deer became the biggest factor for us, particularly on the Blue Mountain, mm. that Kittatinny Ridge. Um, <laughs> we had some failures. There's no doubt about it. We had some failures up there in the Blue Mountain. Okay. Failures are your best experiences for learning. Yeah. Um, the deer. The deer got ahead of it. Mm. And we were not, at that point, able to fence. We were not allowed to use deer fencing until two year 2000. That was the first year we were allowed to put fencing up. So the net result was, in the 80s and 90s, when deer numbers were very high, we faced some major challenges. And some of them were successful and some of them were not successful. Meaning we got something growing, but we certainly didn't get what our target species was and the stem density that we were looking for. And that's the key, Dave, right there, when you asked you know, what does a grouse and woodcock need? Food, water, cover. Sure. Same as anything else needs. 
What's food for grouse? Grouse eat a multitude of herbaceous growth, buds, berries, acorns. Food isn't usually an issue with grouse. Cover for grouse to flourish needs a dense stem count. Uh, I don't 10 know. 10 to 15,000 seedlings to the acres yeah. is desirable. That's that's the most important factor. That protects them from birds of prey, um, ground predators. So that's the type of habitat that's critical, critical, critical to get them to a later stage in life. Mm -hmm. Obviously, water is, for grouse, it could be a puddle, a stream, a yeah. seep. Sure. Um, so... And all that needs to be in a close proximity because the grouse has a very small home range. Yeah, that's one thing I know. Grouse woodcock, what is the home? What kind of home range are you well, looking at? Woodcock's migratory. Yeah, but. a woodcock's a migratory bird. So they go the whole way from Canada to Louisiana mm -hmm. and the Carolinas. And um, so localized impact on them, same thing. High stem counts. Because they're loafing during the day and they do most of their feeding at night. Okay. They'll fly to open areas at night and, you know, they eat a lot of earthworms and those sorts of things. So, but, so the habitat is very similar in pockets. Now, a grouse, I'm told, and Dave may be able to shed some light on this, lives a large percent of, percentage of his life within a six-acre block. About a 50-acre home range is what's a number we always were told. I don't know okay. what you've heard, Ben, but yeah. 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 Meaning they spend their whole life, depending on the habitat and, and availability of food sources, they'll sure. bounce around that area. And then there's going to be a core area where they find most of their sustainable, they're able to sustain their life mm -hmm. on this area primarily. And we're back to diversity game. We need all that in yeah. 50 acres. Yeah. Right. We need mature forest. We need dense stem count we need herbaceous growth we need water a we staggering canopy yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. i uh yeah <laughs> the the one thing that rings in my ears all the time and, and it kind of goes back to the the deer conversation i i'm too young i'm i'm too far gone to know the the history of of how hunting was but i've heard stories of you know generations ahead of me talking about um, how great the deer hunting was, how great the populations were, and why can't we sustain that? And understanding or how to explain uh, a boom-bust carrying capacity, what, what's going on, is really, really difficult. Um, and I, I guess in my small mind, I always thought that maybe the rate of return with good management practices would be would be quicker than, than what we've seen in some cases. It's just, it's so much work to be able to connect the pieces of the puzzle like you were talking because uh, doing a 20-acre restoration, a 50-acre restoration is great, but you, you need massive amounts to overcome that because with what, what do you say, 12 million acres of the same? Yeah, yeah, 12 million acres in, of forest in Pennsylvania out of 19 million acres. Yeah, yeah and it's all the, the same age. Like, and Pretty this much is, the same age, yes. And, and this is one thing I don't know. So I think about the the forest was basically clear-cut yeah. in that time frame. Sure. That's right. Um, I mean, beyond high-graded. What, what kind of impacts did that have on the forest stand to impact, uh, like, the timber management now? Because that's a huge part of getting the timber cuts accomplished because money makes a world go round, now, right? you got to remember one thing. Deer numbers were exceedingly low at that time period. So deer impacts did not become a problem. To, during the 30s, they used to refer to the red brush. That was all the red maple that was coming back and growing at that point. Okay. okay? And the deer numbers went like this. They had two hard winters, and the deer population collapsed again because of that. But prior, when that harvesting was occurring, deer numbers were exceedingly low. So generally what species were there, even if it was just stump sprouts. Now, conifers don't sprout. You have to understand that. Any of the conifers, primarily hemlock and white pine, do not sprout. So those components could have been lost or were greatly reduced because of no advanced seedlings. The other species that do sprout, which is all the other deciduous hardwoods, they would have sprouted and should have prospered quite well, including mm -hmm. the oaks. Uh, American chestnut, which was another dominant species on the landscape, got removed by the chestnut blight starting in 1906. So that changed the dynamics of the forest and the food resource of the forest at the same time. Today, the American chestnut barely exists yeah. in most locations. I find one or two a year. Yes, that's correct. 
okay? And it would have been about 30% of the trees in the forest prior to the blight, the impacts of the blight. So that changed the wildlife and the wildlife habitat because that chestnut was a great food source. They produced chestnuts year after year after mm -hmm. year. So when the oaks failed or the cherries failed or the, or any of the younger, I mean, the shrub component failed, there was always the chestnut to sort of pick it up or carry it forward. That went by the wayside. So that changed, A, the dynamics of the forest, the management of the forest, and see the impact for the benefit for wildlife at the same time. Yeah, I didn't even think about that because I, you know, uh, we're talking about oaks, boom and bust. I mean, sure. the, the past three years in, in one of the locations upstate that I, I bear hunt at, it has been bust. We've had very, very poor acorn crops, and it, mm -hmm. it fluctuates. And I didn't even think about the dynamic of the forest where one's getting one one's dampening off, another one's picking up the pace from a wildlife standpoint as well as a forest standpoint, the whole ecosystem. Um, you talked about the chestnut blight. Uh, a couple other things that come to my mind, the ash borer had a major impact on changing our forest. Did that have an impact on, on grouse woodcock habitat at the same time? They, in my experience, first off, you got to think we're white ash. Primary, it's predominantly white ash that's been impacted. It, they, the ash borer affects all the ash. We, mm -hmm. there's, there's green ash, black ash, red ash, and white ash. If I, Those are the four I'm thinking of. Uh, white ash is the most prevalent. It's generally a moist site, stream bottom, rich fertile sites, not on an upland site at all. Uh, so the benefit for wildlife, and it produces seed, and I'm sure squirrels will eat it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm assuming small road any small rodent would utilize it as far as deer or bear or grouse turkeys woodcock I, I don't see much there from a food source loss they're, they're going to benefit from the habitat coming behind it as long as it's not invasive species yeah. and that's what we're seeing that's what i'm seeing well, and let's talk about that a little bit too because invasive species we've talked about on the show for other aspects and stuff and it has a major impact but i mean you know some of the biggest threats that i think about you know it, basically anything with Japanese in front of it seems to be a major problem, and I don't mean that derogatory, but it's the truth. I mean, Jap you know, Japanese stilt grass, honeysuckle, yada yada, and uh, autumn olive, barberry. There's all kinds of stuff. But I mean, like, what are some of the things that are coming? What are are, are any more pronounced than others in some of the sites you work at as far as difficulty in management? Go ahead, Ben. You can, <laughs> you can deal with that one. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of like you said. You ran through the list and there are others i mean what it what it does is it makes it harder f especially for private landowners that okay. don't have a budget to spray mm. may not have a forester that helps them figure out when to spray so definitely agencies have a hard time but uh you know i've been thinking a lot about how hard it is for private you know family forest owners to to deal with invasives luckily we've been getting some money from National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and some other sources to help um, private forest owners do some good management, including spraying some invasives. But yeah, it's a it's a real challenge. It's um, it's adding to the the complexity of forest management for sure. Absolutely. So when it comes to management, like any time I get rid of something, you need something to replace it. And I've had that in my own struggles where I'll I'll try to get rid of. I'm just going to throw one out. Still grass. You know, mm -hmm. Japanese still grass is a big problem. Um, but I've, I've had the problem where it's coming back and it's not getting replaced. And, like, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of examples of why that would be. But um, I struggle to know, like, what the right steps are in some cases when it comes to removal. Like, is it – it's because it's not as easy as removing it and we're done, right? No. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Far from it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, think of it this way. Most invasive species, they germinate earlier than native species. Mm -hmm. So they get a jump on the growing season when we start to green up in the spring. Right. When they're producing their seed, they're very prolific seed producers. And what they've learned with silkgrass in particular is the seed is viable for up to about five years in the leaf litter. You have a seed bank. If you think of where the leaves fall and everything that falls into that, that top, we'll say three quarters of an inch. Um, in there is all kinds of seeds. Some of them are going to germinate, some that aren't. If, they're mo if most of those are invasive species, they're going to get a jump on anything else that germinates, and there's enough seed there that they're going to overwhelm or, st or out-compete other species, desirable species, particularly native species. Right. For example, an, oak, an acorn or a tulip poplar, red maple, birch, a beech, whatever, okay, those kind of things. The invasive species issue when I was working and continues to be, was a challenging issue because funding was critical on public land. 
And how much of it is a timing aspect as well from the management side of things as far as from removal? our st- From this, my standpoint, we timed it that we were going to – we had a sale planned and marked and ready to be sold before we wanted to treat the site with any kind of a herbicide. Okay. So we had a small window of generally – depending on which herbicides were used and how successful they were, three to five years. Mm. We had a window that we could try to capture that, that was establishment of that advanced regeneration as Ben alluded to. Those young seedlings that are there and we're trying to grow them through the process. So the timing was critical, the funding was critical. Some years we had a lot of funding, some years we didn't have much funding. Mm. That, that was the ebb and flow of the public working for a public agency. Let's talk about management tools. We talked a lot about cutting, but we mentioned fire a little bit. Um, I had uh, John Wakefield on the podcast a number good, of years ago talking person. about uh, yeah, talking about fire and, and management and everything else. And a, a lot of that comes down to, again, manpower and, and getting the right burn days because there's only a few good amount of burn window. days throughout, uh, uh, throughout the year. Yep. Um, that's controversial, too, though. I mean, there's so many people that want to say bad things about fire just because of the timing, whether it's since spring gobbler or nesting or something along those Heard lines those. yep Heard yeah those. that's we, a that's a tough one but i mean can you guys just enlighten us a little bit from the from the avenue when you're thinking about uh, habitat restoration from woodcock and grouse too there's a game lands in in northern dolphin county that's twelve thousand acres timber quality on about nine thousand acres of it is very poor mm-hmm. not enough to sustain active management most of the time. So fire became the, mani- the major tool for management. Um, you got to understand in Pennsylvania prior to 2009, if we wanted to use prescribed fire, which we did not, and I was the person that authorized to burn and lit the match, I was personally responsible for anything that happened with that fire. I don't have deep pockets, so needless to say that didn't happen, okay? In 2009, the law changed, and it, allowed, and it changed that responsibility to more training, more qualifications, but the agency assumed the liability. So the burn program for the Pennsylvania Game Commission jumped, started to move forward in 2009. 2010, we conducted our first burn. By 2014, we had conducted two aerial burns on this large game lands in Dolphin County. Mm-hmm. We burnt 600 and about 50 acres in a day with aerial burn, using a helicopter, dropping we call them ping pong balls, little fireballs that hit and, and, and incinerate. Anyway, the next day, the fire was out. Everything went fine. I got two calls from people that wanted to spring gobbler hunt. They were irate over the fact that we had burnt the area they wanted to hunt. The next day, I got a call from a guy who went into the burn, called a gobbler in and shot it. He was happy as all get out. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, the, now people learn it's the, a magnet the, to go yeah, to. Okay. And it, it, the word sort of got out there that this isn't always a bad thing. Right. Okay. But until people learn that or experience that, you can imagine how people react to it. And they don't react real positively. Mm. Uh, habitat is a big threat. But there's, there's other threats to, to grouse woodcock and let's touch base on them a little bit before we we wrap this up too because i've heard a host of different things and i feel like from the general population standpoint anytime something is wrong it's pointed to the most obvious or the easiest thing to point and i think about like turkeys and grouse people blame west nile or will blame predators those are the easiest things to to point the fingers at and they are important and i wouldn't mind bringing those up before we let this uh, loud diesel truck go past us before we answer that. Um, but yeah, I mean, other other avenues or other issues that we have as far as sustaining populations outside the habitat. Re- really, that the, the only tool in the toolbox is fantastic habitat. Yeah, grouse can sustain predation; they can sustain disease. Sure when they have great habitat, flourishing populations. Where it gets tricky and what happens now in Pennsylvania is isolated populations in mediocre habitat. And there's a big effect on those birds. But from a conservation standpoint and a group, um, our only tool is to increase the amount and the quality of habitat to help them sustain those challenges 
they bounce back a lot faster. Okay. As Jan said, if they have good habitat. Yeah. So we're not going to get rid of West Nile. Uh, we can help the birds, help the populations be more resilient. I, I don't know much about West Nile. Is there, is there like, like how severe is that? How prevalent is that? Is it, you know, is there any data that suggests it, it can have X percentage of impact? Like I, I know nothing about it and its potential. And I wonder what, you, what, what is out there? I don't remember that study from Michigan. Michigan was working on a study in conjunction with some of the other states. Maybe you'd want to reach out to the Game Commission rough grouse biologist, mm-hmm. and they could provide more information for you, or maybe a suggested yeah, absolutely. Po- podcast maybe along those lines might absolutely. be a, a better tool. And they've One, been testing. I mean, they've been asking grouse hunters to send in blood samples, and they're finding out that grouse are becoming more resilient to it. There's birds that are actually testing positive for the antibodies and titers and survived and that's natural progression that's herd immunity Mm -hmm. so they're going to get there but it's still a huge concern again on weakened decimated populations and poor habitat Mm. and and like ben said we're we're not going to get rid of it one other consideration from a habitat perspective that both ben and jan alluded to (laughs) is winter winter time okay mm-hmm. wildlife has to survive in the winter with the habitat that's available if it's quality habitat the wildlife comes through the winter generally in pretty good condition okay come spring they're going to reproduce and the population will do its thing mm-hmm. if the habitat is poor or there's no winter thermal cover or things like that then wildlife is going to struggle and those isolated populations are probably going to crash to almost nothing mm-hmm. so part of that picture is some of the impacts of invasives again on like the hemlock okay hemlock willie adelgid has been a major factor in this part of the state now when you get up in the north central above isn't it i think it's 1500 feet or 1800 there's a threshold number um the impacts are not as great but in this part of the state part of the northeast south central southeast the impacts have been I won't say 100%, 95% of the hemlocks have been gone, yeah. okay? And those are the ones that protect the streams, water quality, that's changing to deciduous species, that's changing that winter thermal cover, that escape cover, that's changing the quality of the water at the same time. So again, those invasives that we've alluded to about other impacts for forest management are affecting winter thermal management also. Mm. Uh Let's uh, let's wrap this up because I know I'm I'm between you guys and dinner and there's a lot of other st- good stuff going on. But one thing I want to close out. I mean, I'm always interested in the science, as you guys can tell. I wanted to pick your brains from that. But we've got a lot of people on here are hunters, and I'm, I I said before I'm deer hunter, bear hunter, turkey hunter. I don't spend much time. But let's let's say I get outside my blockhead and this a big game, and I say, you know what, I want to go grouse hunting this year. And one of the things I do from a scouting standpoint for whitetails, like I love the DCNR maps of when things were cut. We have it for the state agencies. I like to get the age of the cuts and think about okay how am i going to approach this from uh, you know deer's use what's that prime time for that cut and how i'm going to use it so with that information in mind like what is like if i'm going to say this is the type of thing i want to target because i want to go try to hunt some grouse what 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 am i going to be looking for i i if i was hunting grouse in the southeast i would be looking for clear cuts that are about five to seven years old Mm. Stem densities are going to be at their max at that point. The hardest to shoot through. Unfortunately. <laughs> but the soft mass, particularly like black blackberries, maybe mm. if there's black raspberries or, or red, ras- red raspberries, and if there's any ground nesting or ground species, partridge berry, tea berry, things like that, the food's going to be there. If the food's in those cuts or on those edges of those cuts, the grouse are going to be there. If there's a grape crop, they're going to be there for mm. grapes. Okay, things like that. That's the first thing that comes to my mind is what is the grapevines. And back to habitat, if you can't shoot them, that's good habitat. Yeah. And it's working the way it's supposed to work. Right. They're safe and protected. Mm -hmm. Not just from you, avian predators and everything else. Absolutely. So it always goes back to ideal habitat. We can send 100 hunters through there. They're not going to get them. Very few of them. If, if you go in, one of the things the Game Commission is doing this year for the first time, 
at, at this banquet, there's a map for everybody. They're going to highlight a, a habitat project each and every year at the grouse banquet. Okay, and they're going to speak a little bit. One of the foresters is going to talk a little bit about what it is. And if you look on, look at the map, it's to give people an insight of what's happening on game lands. And here's a spot to consider hunting. Mm. And it's a little bit of a hook to get people to come to an RGS banquet at the same time. Right. Oh uh, yeah. There's always got to be a piece of cake for somebody at the end of it, I guess. Sure. So, yeah. Guys, thank you so much for uh, doing this. Anything you want to leave us with? Things you, like goals, things you're going in the next few uh, few weeks, months, years. The one thing I want to leave you with, um, roughgrousesociety.org. Is that our website? Thank you very much. Good idea. Roughgrousesociety.org. All the information on what's going on, you know, is on there. There's news and press releases. There's an RGS store you can get garb. There's blogs on there. There's habitat things that you're asking about. Events, what's happening. Absolutely. So, you know, I would encourage everyone roughgrousesociety.org to get a whole lot of information there and what's the best way to get involved um join become a member of a chapter yeah i just joined tonight yeah awesome thank you very much great good deal thank you very much gentlemen for uh for coming on uh this is great conversation i hope this uh gets people excited and thinking about uh early succession habitat because it's the stuff i know most hunters at boars but i love it this this is fun Thanks it's for having me. It's the least desirable to hunt. Yep. Thank you.